morning, everyone. Good to be with you on this birthday. Thanks for telling the story so well, Nelson. Uh, it's good to uh, have some of those memories. And yeah, so much gratitude to God for his faithfulness that we're here. In, in those nine years, there's been a lot of churches that have come and gone even in this city. And there's been a lot of friends that have come and gone. And so just feel grateful for what is in this moment and, and that you're here and we're we're here together, so grateful for that. Uh, this morning, let's talk about money. Um, curious here, just as a thought experiment, what are the emotions that s- surround the topic of money? Maybe even as I just said the word, or you saw the slide. Um, guilt. guilt, okay. Anxiety. Anxiety. It's not for real. It's not for real. <laughs> Defensiveness. Yeah, concerning riches, yeah. What other emotions? Happiness? Pride? Security? Curious, in, in the last two days, let's just go the weekend then, so whatever we've, you know, Sunday and all of Saturday, that's not full two, but let's just go in the last two days. Okay, we'll add Friday. Um, who here has thought about money in some way? Yours, someone else's. Okay. How, how many of you thought about money this morning? Okay, that's interesting. If you'd be brave, and, and you, can, you could also speak hypothetically, that you're just speaking for a friend. But um, <laughs> what were you doing? What were you doing when you were thinking about money this morning or the last two days? What's one word? What were you, what were you doing? Were you, were you planning? Or what, what were you doing? Looking at real, estate. real estate? Looking at real estate? At an, so, uh, at an auction. At an auction. Okay. Sinking into a hole of depression. Thank you for being bold. <laughs> what was going on in your mind when you were thinking about money? Worrying. Worrying. Wishing you had more. Sense of duty. Waste. Comparing. Figuring out how much you're owed. This is interesting. Whether we're speculating, whether we're running scenarios, whether we were worrying, looking for solutions, all of that. What we're really doing to cover all of that, we're imagining. We're considering possibility. We're using our imaginations when it comes to money. It seemed like that's the thing that we're doing, and um, which is really why we're looking at this series, Financial Imagination. A couple of reasons. Um, in the next year, we want to have a, a few series throughout the year to keep this, um, this notion of practicing the way of Jesus in front of us as a church, to drill down on a given practice. So for Say three weeks, we're going to look at just one practice and to, to get not only theological but tangible and practical about a practice. And so this is our first practice series, and it's on uh, money. And this is just the outline in the coming weeks. Today, we're, um, yeah, let's, we're looking at financial imagination. Next week, we're looking at it in the church. And then um, the third week, we're looking at it um, by and beyond the church. So that's where we're going. We're, we're looking at this because Jesus spoke. There's 
2,500 verses in the Bible having to do with money and possessions. And Jesus said more about money than any other topic. And so if we're going to practice the way of Jesus, then we need to pay attention to what he said. And we have to figure out then how does that get integrated into everyday life, which is really hard because most of us will spend about a third of our time at income-producing jobs, but how we manage to choose, or how we choose to manage those earnings really determines whether we are free to serve the greater good or not. And yet we rarely talk about this stuff. <laughs> it's easier to talk about the national debt than my personal finances, or to complain about predatory lending and evil corporations than to face the greed that exists in me. And while the impact of larger systems, you know, we shouldn't minimize that. The primary focus for this morning is on personal values, beliefs, uh, those core things that are kind of beneath the thing when it comes to money. I like how Mark and Lisa Skandrit put it. We live in one of the wealthiest economies on earth, yet many of us feel crunched for time, stressed in our finances, or perplexed about what makes life meaningful. Culture is driven by a sense of scarcity, fear, and an unquenchable quest for more. If we don't make conscious choices to resist these impulses, the force of a materialistic and consumeristic society will make most of our decisions for us. The scripts we've inherited about material prosperity are wearing us out, robbing our joy, and destroying the planet. So it can, even as we wade into it, there can be the sense, I don't know who said, you know, drowning in a hole. There can be a sense of stuckness when it comes to finance. And I, I, I want to talk about really one of my heroes here, one of my all-time heroes, Edwin Friedman, who I think wrote the best book on leadership called Failure of Nerve. And Friedman did all kinds of consulting. He, he consulted with organizations and People, he's a family uh, systems uh, therapist. He, he did some consulting with the White House. And Friedman said he got to the point where he didn't even need to get a briefing on what the problem was. He didn't even need to hear the story of, of what the nature of the problems was. He says, I, I knew right away what, what the problem was. It was anxiety. Whatever problem people felt uh, they were facing, he said it was always anxiety. He had this great phrase called imaginative gridlock. I love that phrase. The, the inability to imagine uh, other possibilities than what we're currently stuck in. And he said, so stuckness was always the thing he was, he was, his work was about. And he said, so stuckness, always, the cause of stuckness every time, fear and anxiety. Every single time. Just a lack of imagination, gone. Uh, And he says, when a person or a system or organization is stuck, more thinking cannot unstuck them. (laughs) And yet that's what we always try to do. We'll think our way out of things. We'll get solutions. We'll brainstorm. Uh, He says, no, what is needed is the thing that nobody considers doing when it's really serious, urgent, and important, and you're stuck. You got to play. You need adventure. You need to risk, you need encounter, you need creativity. And once you start engaging those kinds of things, what happens? Oh, imagination starts coming back in. Uh, So what dislodges stuckness is play, encounter, risk. 
This is how new imagination gets born. I like one of the best definitions, I think, for imagination, because it's not just like kind of airy-fairy, but it's, it's something we're always involved in is, is this definition for imagination. Imagination is the human capacity to picture, portray, receive, and practice the world in ways other than it appears to be at first glance when seen through a dominant, habitual, unexamined lens. So that's what we want to come into in these next three weeks. Financial imagination. Examining the lenses that we have with finance. Examining and, and facing the ways we may be stuck, actually stuck, per, perhaps crippled by debt, or, or not seeing a way forward in, in terms of how this works uh, with our time and our workload. We're, we're, we may say, yeah, imagine if gridlock, that is me. So we want to come at this playfully with the easy yoke of, of Jesus. And, and hopefully uh, there might be some risk and adventure that gets born even this morning or in this coming week. Wouldn't that be great? So asking questions like how might we then reimagine our assumptions, our lenses about time and money and possessions? How might we pursue a life of greater freedom so we can leverage our time and resources towards what matters most? Or just to put it really succinctly, how might we be more free? And this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about shame or embarrassment or guilt around finances. We're talking about how might you be more free? How might we be more free so that we can live free for what matters most? So let me say a short prayer and we'll get into Hebrews 13. Thank you, Jesus. You are the Lord of death and resurrection, and therefore you're always breaking things open. There's always more possibility than we currently see, and you hold it. And so we pray this morning for fresh imagination, an intrusion of faith in, in, in the way we see ourselves, see you, see the world. Holy Spirit, would you birth new faith and imagination even in us, even in this moment? Pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So Hebrews 13. These are, I think, some, some phenomenal uh, words to consider together this morning. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So that first, that first uh, instruction there, keep your lives free from the love of money. And what's happening here in Hebrews uh, chapter 13 is in a way a collection of condensed wisdom. And if you read the whole chapter, you'll just see it's firing off on all kinds of topics. And we're right in here, a little, like a little section, I think a really helpful section about finance. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Not keep your lives free from money. Okay, This is not some sort of, I guess, glorification of poverty or some sort of uh, you know, anything like that. But the, the love of money. This is the thing to be aware of because when you love something or, or when you love someone, you begin making sacrifices for them. And when you find yourself making sacrifices for something in your life that continues to beckon you and, and, uh, and eventually own you, you want to be aware of that. So keep your life free from being tangled up, we could say, 
in a disordered fixation and attachment to money. And so the writer of Hebrews here is really just riffing off of Jesus. And we looked at at, uh, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount this past summer in Matthew 6. Uh, But just to refresh us, verse 24, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Sometimes that word money, depending on your translation, is translated mammon. You cannot serve both God and mammon. So is there a difference between money and mammon? And what is Jesus on about here? So first, uh, money. I I really like how Lynn Twist uh, puts this in her, her book, The Soul of Money. She says this, money is like water. Money flows through all our lives, sometimes like a rushing river and sometimes like a trickle. When it is flowing, it can purify, cleanse, create growth, and nourish But when it is blocked or held too long, it can grow stagnant and toxic to those withholding or hoarding it. Like water, money is a carrier. It can be a current or currency of love, a conduit for commitment. It's a beautiful image of the possibility of money. But what then is mammon, and what what does Jesus mean? Well, mammon, uh, as I said, often is translated... Um, as just simply as money. Mammon is derived from the word amon, which means that in which we trust. So mammon then is the things that get attached to money. Mammon is all about the ways we look to money to provide for us things, like God-like things, like significance, security, well-being, status, identity, these kinds of things. So mammon is money plus attachments. And Jesus is saying, beware, because when it's money plus, that becomes like a god. And that god is called mammon. It takes godlike status. And Jesus puts mammon as, really, as the primary competitor for the people of God, for, for allegiance. Jesus deals with all kinds of challenges, but makes mammon a super big deal. Keep your lives free from the disordered attachment, from from looking to, to money to provide you things that only God is faithful to do. Keep your lives free. It's hard to separate that, money and mammon. So I want to do a little exercise with you. Uh, Terry, can you help us with that? We're going to pass this out. We're going to do some homework right in the middle of the sermon here. This is from uh, premarital counseling, uh, from preparing and rich. And it's important uh, if you're going into marriage, you've got to talk about money. So we're going to do that this morning. This one little exercise called the meaning of money. So we'll just go kind of section by section. Um, we've got the pencils going around. So fairly basic exercise here. I know, I know some of you are going to be too cool to do this, and that's okay. You're just going to say, I'm not doing, I'm not doing an exercise. That's up to you. You're lost. This is, this is awesome. Super fun. Um, 16 questions. You know how to do these. Strongly agree being one. Strong, sorry, strongly disagree one. Strongly agree five. So you go down the 16 questions, marking... Uh, your answer, 
And then at the bottom, don't look at that yet, but at the bottom you're going to add up questions one to four, and you're going to put it on your score. And we'll talk about how to interpret it here uh, for a second, okay? Just in a few, few moments. But once you get a pencil and a paper, just start going, going to town, and, and we'll circle back up. Okay, and if you're getting near the bottom, then the instructions are just you add questions one to four, and you put that number under the line that says your score, right beside it, and then you do the same for questions five to eight, nine to twelve, and so on. So begin adding up your score. Okay, we're getting close to being done.
So as it says, you can have, you can have more than one being a high score or very high. There's, there's a fluctuation there. Uh, any, any surprises, to, even to yourself, about how you value money as you look at that? Any, anyone feel a little surprised or suspicious of the, of the outcome of this very verifiable exam? Anyone surprised? Or, or, no, okay, so we mostly, okay, one. And what gets interesting then, because this is a premarital uh, exercise is, is then being in a relationship with someone who may value money differently than you do, who may attach things to money differently than you do. And so there can be conflict there. So let's just hold on to that. If you, if you the sermon gets boring, you can revisit that and keep working on it. But now you've got your lunch conversation right there, okay? <laughs> Compare notes with people just absolutely boldly. So Jesus' warning and what Hebrews is saying, keep your lives free from or, or just beware of the things you attach to money before it becomes like a godlike thing in your life. The scripture continues then in Hebrews. And be content with what you have. This call for contentment. I, I like how one um, economist put it this way. He says, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. Saying that the economy actually is built on this and necessitates you being a consumptive uh, unit. <laughs> and and we, you have to keep consuming and I, and I think of, of how life gets so skewed to being anti-contentment through things like this. Like just a Pinterest board. It's like this is a formative, a very formative piece of technology here where it, it shapes one to scour the internet for the life you wish you had. Right, Just to scour it and find out all the ways that your particular f- furniture is kind of crappy. right? Or that birthday party or that wedding. Oh my goodness, pulling off a wedding in the age of Pinterest. How stressful. But you know, what is this? But this is straight up imagination formation. Absolutely. Or to consider Instagram ads. I heard this week that we typically see more ads in one week, not just Instagram, but all ads. We see more ads in one week than the person who lived 50 years ago would in their entire lifetime. So we're like, we are, what does that do to your contentment levels? Like, it's just absolute formation about your imagination, what you believe is good and desirable and what you should have and when you should have it. Think about all the scripts that we receive about money. Things like, you deserve better. Satisfy your cravings. You can never have enough, or at least enough of a good thing. More is always better. This is what Amy tells me in cooking, because I have a tendency with spices that more is always better. She's like, Lance, more is always less. Easy on the spices. Uh, The kind of work you do determines your worth. Your worth is your net worth. First take care of yourself and then be generous with the leftovers. 
Resources are scarce, so therefore take as much as you can. Or having resources will give you security and control. Or there's other church scripts. If you have money, God has blessed you and you've done something right. Or if you don't have money, you've done something wrong. Or you don't have enough faith. So if we were to summarize all these scripts, all the ways we're being formed, it could be just this. The basic equation for satisfaction, I'm about to drop some heavy level math here, is whatever the thing is plus more. The way you get free from anxiety is just accumulating. And we've got all kinds of grown-up language for this. Financial safety net, nest egg, lots of savings. The thing is, our anxiety increases as our accumulations increase. Why? Because the more things you have, the more you fear losing them. There's a scarcity mindset that just permeates our culture. That there's not enough to go around. You've got to get yours while the getting's good. So what does this script then produce? Well, we could, if we wanted, we could spend the rest of the morning confessing what this script does to your insides. I know what it does to mine, often churns them raw, the anxiety and worry. Talk about the fruit of these scripts would just, you could say, it, you should see my credit card bill. All kinds of imaginative gridlock and real gridlock, opposite of freedom. But if you want a better story, then you need a better script. And so in a culture that only knows the pursuit of more, the scripture here is saying, there's, a, there's another pursuit. It's called enough. Like how G.K. Chesterton put it, he says, there's two ways to have enough money. One is to acquire more, and the other is to desire less. So when we begin to pay attention to, you know, these wise and, and crazy things that Jesus said about wealth and meaning and possessions, things like your life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Or don't worry about your life what you will eat or drink, seek first God's kingdom. If we were to start considering those scripts, what, might, what kind of life would that produce? What kind of fruit would start showing up on your branches as you abide in that kind of reality? Listen to the words of someone who has lived off of that script. This is Paul. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So what's the secret then for contentment? Hebrews 13 continues. Next slide. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. The basis for contentment apparently, is something that God has said, a promise. And what's the promise? Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The all-sufficient one says that you can be content not through the pursuit of more and more attachments, but because of my attachment to you. The one who knows no lack, who is rich in love, the one in whom all things were made and all things are sustained, and all things hold together. The one who is beginning and and The one who does not slumber nor sleep. The one who is the everlasting God with an everlasting king, kingdom. This all-sufficient one says, I ain't going anywhere 
which is the Greek. That's how you translate the Greek in Hebrews. I ain't going anywhere. I'm attached to you. Now, that can be a nice plaque on grandma's wall, or that can be the script. That can be your operating system. That can be the core of what you live out of. I'm absolutely loaded. I'm so rich. I'm wealthy. Why? Because God's not going anywhere, and God has it all. Everything I need, God has. The psalmist, this poet, whose imagination is just getting widened, starts writing things like this in Psalm 145. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all his promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. So the psalmist is on a, something here. So like, what kind of world do I live in? That's, that seems like a simple, but it's a huge question. What kind of world? Is it one of scarcity or abundance? And what kind of God is in this world? Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is that God like? The psalmist is saying this God is eager to provide and satisfy the desires of every living thing. So it's a world of abundance, and at the center of it is an abundant God who's, who's good. And then who am I then in relation to this God? Oh, I'm, I'm a recipient. I'm a receiver. I'm blessed. I'm graced. I was reading this week about Tom Waits um, and this interview about the wild man himself, about songwriting. And I don't know if you've ever, if you've listened to Tom Waits, he's kind of a love or hate type of musician. But um, if you ever want to hear like a very poetic, um, if you want to know like a poetic sound of Cookie Monster singing, this would be uh, Tom, Tom Waits. But really an actual, like a, a genius um, in many ways. Uh, so it's an interview about songwriting and the craft of like, and whether or not you songwrite or not, it's a mysterious thing. How does this, how is there a song? And previously there was no song, this creative process. And, and so Waits is, is reflecting on all the different ways song ideas will take shape when they're trying to be born. That's his language. A song is trying to be born. So he says, some songs will come to him with ease, like uh, dreams taken through a straw. <laughs> Others, he says, he has to work hard for, like digging potatoes out of the ground. He said, some songs are sticky and weird, like gum found under an old table. <laughs> some songs are like wild birds that you got to come up at them sideways, sneaking up gently so you don't scare them. He says, the most difficult songs, though, are the ones who don't want to be born, and they only respond to a firm hand and an authoritative voice, he said. And he says, these are songs that just won't allow themselves to be born. And they hold up the whole recording process. And the album can be delayed. So what Waits has done, he says, in moments like this, he's cleared out the studio. Everybody leave, musicians and engineers, so that he can give a stern talking to a particularly obstinate song. And he paces the studio alone saying, listen, you. We're all going for a ride together. The whole family's already in the van. You have five minutes to get on board or else this album is leaving without you. 
And he said, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. He said, Wait says, sometimes you have to learn how to just let go. He said, some songs aren't serious yet about getting born. And Waits used to suffer anguish over losing songs, not finishing them. But he says now he's learning to trust. If, if a song is serious about being born, then he trusts that it will come to him in the right manner and at the right time. And if not, if not, then he says he'll just send it away and he'll say, go bother someone else. Go bother Leonard Cohen. <laughs> and over the years, Waits finally learned to deal with his creative process more lightly, without so much drama and fear. How did he do that? Waits says his conversion happened by watching his kids. He watched how his children uh, were growing up, and he was seeing their total creative freedom, a creative expression. He noticed that his children were absolutely bold and brazen in making up songs all the time. And then when they were done with them, he said they would just toss them out like little origami things or paper airplanes. And then they'd sing the next song that came down the channel. He said they never seemed to worry that the flow of ideas would dry up. They never stressed about their creativity. And they never competed against themselves. And Waits says this has been the opposite of his approach. He's tended to be overly serious overwrought, overworked. He's been heavy. He squelched his own creativity. He said his process has been one of torment and dark nights of the soul, lost in artistic suffering. And lastly, he said this, and that he called that suffering by another name. He misnamed his suffering. He called it dedication. So what are we saying here? Well, we're all trying to bring something into the world. And what kind of world is this? Is it one of scarcity or abundance? And Waits, by watching his kids, realized, oh, they live in a world of abundance. There's no shortage of ideas or songs to make. What's getting in the way of me participating in that? Fear. Fear that there's not enough ideas. That I might squeeze this thing. Uh, and what's getting then, or how do I get into sharing in abundance? Trust. Trust that the world's abundant. What's the outcome of this way of life? Creativity. And then lastly, what's the hardest thing to spot in all of this? Well, that he misnamed his suffering as dedication. Because it wasn't dedication. So what do we misname? It could be that you're misnaming your anxiety as financial stewardship. Or striving and overworking as just being responsible. There's all kinds of things that get misnamed. And so the writer of Hebrews says, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? This is a new script. The Lord is my helper. I'm not going to be afraid. Or how the, Paul says in Ephesians, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. When I think of the story of artisan in these last nine years, one of my own, per the personal thing that God's been schooling me has been in this verse. It's one of my all-time favorite verses. And where I'm, I've been getting schooled and continue to get schooled is in those two words, according to. 
Because I tend to take on things I, I, that, that I, I can more or less know that I could do. But when it comes to things like church, the things of God, I can't control those. So I can't do them. So the whole time I've been trying to get the math to add up. If the sum is like a new church, a growing church, a healthy church, okay, so then how are we going to get the equation? So it's me plus you plus whatever else you're going to throw in there. He's like, ah, it just doesn't add up. Can't get the numbers to add up, to be enough. And so the, the wrestle is, is just a constant sense of not having or being enough. And if I was to be honest, that at times has crippled me because I'm living according to my power, according to my gifts, according to my horizons of possibility and my seeing. But conversion is conversion into a life that lives not according to you, but according to his power, according to his power that is at work in you. That's where all the good stuff is. That's where the adventure is, learning how to live according to not just your bank account or your spiritual gifts inventory or your family of origin or whatever list of gifts that you think you actually have or or even your limits and liabilities. That's not what the, the whole thing's about, according to his power. So, financial imagination. How might we cultivate it? I heard a story this week of uh, Warren Buffett, who at one point, I guess, was the most wealthy man in the world. And he shares this story of being out for lunch when he was a 10-year-old boy with his dad. And they were downtown New York, and his dad worked in finance, and they were out for lunch, and uh, little Warren, as a 10-year-old boy, got to tag along. And it was this fancy lunch, and after the lunch, uh, a person came to the table and had all kinds of um, tobacco leaves. And one of the men that was sitting at lunch carefully selected the tobacco leaves, and then the person holding them right there rolled a custom cigar, cut it, and lit it for the man. And Warren says it was in that moment that I knew I wanted this lifestyle and I wanted a life of wealth. Ten years old, he has this formative encounter that shaped his imagination to the degree where he says, that is the trajectory of my life. I am going to become wealthy. Have you ever considered or investigated what are your formative encounters when it comes to your financial imagination? Whether it's been an encounter of abundance or scarcity? Have you examined the stories and scripts that you've received about money from your parents or siblings, your family of origin? Have you looked at that? Have you considered who are the, the, the people, the key influencers that have shaped your financial imagination? I, I think that would be some good work for us to do. So how might we cultivate that? Just a few ideas here as we close. Uh, I've been intrigued again by this, this book called, uh, called Free by Mark and Lisa Scandret. Um, they live in San Francisco, and a lot of the work they've done is around finance, um, doing workshops and working this out in group settings in a really expensive city like San Francisco. Mark and Lisa Scandret um, do yeah, these experiments around finances. How can we help? People be free to create beauty, to nurture relationships, to seek the greater good through our finances. Um, 
and not just to have lives dictated by the need to pay bills and maintain a consumptive lifestyle. How can we, you know, become more free? So they've got these five things. The first thing they lead people through is just to name the worry. Uh, they do this exercise in groups where everyone makes a list of the things you're worrying about. What's taking up, what's taking up RAM uh, in, on your hard drive? What, where, where's your mind going? They've done things where they've got a they'll send texts to one another as a group, saying, this is what I'm currently worrying about, and bombarding other people in your group with your worries. Um, and he said, when they did this, we, we were surprised at how often we all worried, especially on Monday mornings. So the first thing is just to name the worries, just to start seeing the anxiety that's creating the imaginative gridlock. When you look at your list of worries, do you notice patterns or themes? Second thing they suggest is worst-case scenario. That's often where we're going anyways, so just go all the way with it. Spin it out as a thought experiment. What's the worst-case scenario for you? Sometimes they're realistic. Sometimes they're totally improbable. Let's just say that it actually is a real possibility that you may lose your job. So what's the worst thing that could happen? I'd have to look for a new job. I might have to like, relocate or go into a different field of work. I might have to you know, move out of my apartment. I might have to be more dependent on others. I say, okay, keep going after that. Or what's another worry? Let's say my doctor dis- discovers like, some abnormality, orders tests to determine whether or not I have cancer. What's the worst thing? Uh, and they, they talk about this. Just face it head on. I could have cancer. Uh, and then what? Well, if it's advanced, then I could, could have a shorter life than expected. Yeah. And then what? Well, then the worst thing is that I would die early and then have an early entrance into the paradise of God. That's what they say. Um, they say, spin out all of these things so you can actually see the fear and face the fear head on. And then three... The disordered attachments. Explore the disordered attachments, uh, which makes me anxious and worried that I'm putting my confidence in. It may not be as serious as a loss of a job or terminal illness, but it can paralyze me still. So what are my worries revealing about my disordered attachments? Fourth thing, a statement of trust. So take that worry and turn it into a statement of trust. For each worry on your list, develop a statement of trust, a new script. So I'm worried that I'm going to lose my job. It can become a script that I trust, God, that you will give me the work and the income that I need in this moment. I worry that I'm not going to have enough save for old age. It becomes I trust that you'll carry for me, care for me as you have in all of my days. And so practicing statements of trust. And then the fifth one is interesting. Counter active measures or countermeasures. I think this is really interesting stuff. Sometimes we don't need solutions, we just need a counteraction. A counteractive measure is an action you take to confront that worry head on. Something to do in the opposite direction. Um, There's a story they shared about a guy whose anxiety centered on doubts about whether or not he was truly important or significant. And so he decided to do an experiment to help himself believe the truth that he couldn't be more loved or affirmed than he already is by God. And he he noticed that a lot of the things he did were motivated by the desire to be noticed and seen. And so to counteract 
that, the counteractive measure was he decided to do three secret acts of goodness in a, uh, in a day that no one would see. And just, just tried a new practice going in the other direction. What steps could you take to confront the things you tend to worry about? That is the way out of imaginative gridlock, a counteractive, playful, risky, adventurous action. So what might those counteractions be then, just to close? I think things like um, a counteract uh, is the generosity litany, which we do every week. It's a way to remind ourselves of the, of the script, that God is the source of everything I need, that God is generous, that everything I have is already a gift. That God's calling me to be generous. That's a formative practice every week. Remember when Berlin said that by memory? When we were out at church camp this last April? Berlin, who's how old? Ten. Just nailed the generosity litany by, uh, by memory. So that's forming us every week. That may be the most important thing you need for, for a month of Sundays, is just to come and to pray that prayer. Other practices, to listen to Tom Waits or other artists that help move the horizon of possibility for you. Uh, another practice could be to start your date rather than dwelling in email, to start at dwelling in Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Just to do like a seven-day experiment. What would happen if I dwelt in these words first? Uh, practice could be to pay attention to what children know that you don't. Uh, you could read Mark and Lisa Skandrit's book free, just as a, with somebody else, and to start thinking about finance. Uh, you could join the table group. We've got a table group starting on Tuesday, yeah? And Nelson's got some really great stuff planned uh, this week on these themes of scarcity and sufficiency. There, in the coming weeks, there's some stuff on personal, personal finance and, and budgeting. And then it, the circle widens out of how can we uh, direct and steward more towards the common good and uh, through and beyond us as a church. It could just be simple things of like sharing your needs, letting someone in, risking the embarrassment of how you're actually doing financially. Just to let someone in on that. And, and as an act of confession and to say, I'm really, really embarrassed about this, but I want you to know. And lastly, sharing your stories of God's provision. Sharing the stories of God's faithfulness to you because those lend imagination and help us consider, oh, yeah, what kind of world is this? It's one of abundance. What kind of God is this? An abundant, generous God. And who am I called to be? A receiver. Um, And that, I think, is how we can cultivate um, financial imagination together. So a few ideas there as we want to actually practice this stuff. Look forward to um, getting into this with you in the coming weeks as we wade in. So we come to the table now uh, hosted by this generous God who, as we've already reminded ourselves, is the one, the God of death and resurrection, which means there's always more possibility than we see in this moment. And so we come to the table to uh, have our faith and our vision restored, um, perhaps for some fresh repentance of the attachments that have been disordering our lives, perhaps just simply to say, I want to live off of a different script um, than the one I've received. I want, I want this new script to know that you're with me and you're not going anywhere. So however you are this morning, this table's open for those who need it. Um, we'll have two lines down the side.